Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's easy to forget that in 2011, women lifting heavy in, uh, in the weight room was so rare that we didn't even have other women in our cities that we could work out with. So we were so hungry for that community that we were willing to travel from all over the country to come together to get in a training session. And so at that weekend, seven women came together from all over the U.S. We were like Las Vegas, Chicago, Baltimore, Belfast, Northern Ireland, and everybody flew in to get in a training session. And that ended up being the beginning of Girls Gone Strong. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is the guest for this episode, entrepreneur Molly Galbraith. Molly, this is her second or third time being on the podcast. I think it's formally her third time. She was one time a full interview. Another time she was at a conference where I was interviewing various speakers at the conference. And I wanted to, I've wanted to invite Molly on the podcast for a while, partly because Molly has done something phenomenal in the industry that I've been able to see firsthand over the past number of years. One, Molly came in and really disrupted how we do, not how we do strength training, but really kind of helped disrupt strength training and, and how we train in the gym. And what I mean by that is prior to the mid to late 2000s, if you went into the free weight area in most commercial gyms and most health clubs, if you went into the free weight area before maybe 2008, 2009, the free weight area was pretty much dominated by men. We know that. You go to any health club today, you go to any major health club in the U.S., the United States, and you go in the free weight area, and you're going to see a roughly 50-50 split between men and women. There are a lot more women lifting weights today than there were 5, 10, 12 years ago. And the guest for this episode, Molly, is a huge part of that. Molly founded a group called Girls Gone Strong, and you'll hear the origin story for that, But more importantly, Molly has evolved this community of women who like to lift weights into education programs. Molly's created two of the best education programs I've seen 
and I've made a career, I've been educating personal trainers for more than 20 years, and Molly's programs have knocked it out of the park. Molly, through Girls Gone Strong, has created a, a full certification for strength training for women, for how to train women's bodies, because that's different than men. Men and women, a pound of muscle, sorry, a kilogram of muscle generates the same force in both, both men and women, but our physiology is different. Therefore, we should be trained differently. Also, Molly came up with a great education course on strength training and, and fitness for, pre, uh, for pregnant and postpartum women. That's why you're listening to Molly on this episode. Molly Galbraith is an entrepreneur. She is somewhat an advocate, a fierce advocate for equality, for gender equality, for inclusivity. And she has really created a space or really helped move the fitness industry to be more accepting and more accommodating. On this episode, Molly and I are going to talk about how she got interested in strength training, why she saw her, the needs that she saw for a community of women who like to strength train. And we're going to finish talking a little bit about how strength training can help you in your life. Here we are, entrepreneur and founder of Girls Gone Strong, Molly Galbraith. Today on All About Fitness, I am super stoked, beyond stoked, to be speaking to Molly Galbraith. Molly, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Pete. How are you? I am all right. Now, Molly, you are well known for picking up heavy stuff, right? And what is one of the things I love about, I'm just going to jump right into it, right? Because one of the things that I love about following you on social media is kind of like how you have fun with that. What's your favorite lift? Like one of the things, one of the lifts I see you post about all the time, there's a specific lift that I see you post about all the time. What's your favorite lift and why do you love that one so much? Yeah, I think you probably know the answer to this. It is a Turkish getup. Um I think I love the exercise. Well, there's a lot of reasons that I love the exercise, but I think one of the most is that it makes me feel really strong and confident and capable. Um, There was a period of time, you know, I've been lifting for almost two decades now, which is wild. I've been in health and fitness for almost two decades. There was a period of time where I had chronic back pain for two years. And um, the Turkish getup was one of the exercises that I could do without pain. And uh, there was about five or six exercises that I could do on a regular basis without pain. And so I was like, all right, screw it. If I can't do anything else, I'm going to get really good at the Turkish getup. And so I think my best getup is like 80 pounds. Um, and so, yeah, so I hit that back in like 2013 and pretty much on any given day, I could probably do 65 or 70, something like that. But it's just, it's a, it's a fun lift. It's an empowering lift. There's something, um, just really cool about being on the ground and being able to stand up with something really heavy over your head. It feels really practical in a lot of ways. You know, I've been, um, uh, we've been doing a lot of, um, education around menopause lately. I'm thinking about just kind of the strength and resilience and control and balance and coordination that it takes to be able to get from laying on the ground to standing up. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's fun. It gets some weird looks in the gym. You can do it with little kids and they like it. You know, you could do it with strange objects. And so for me, it's, yeah, it's just, it's one that brings me a lot of joy. Well, I, I say that because I think one of your videos recently, you, well, people can't see me smiling. Um, but one of the videos recently, I think you, 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 you posted a video of, of doing a TGU with a kid. And I know when my kids were a little bit smaller, I did, uh, I would teach them how to wrap up. I taught them how to wrap up in a ball and I could hold on to their, I could hold on to their thigh or hold on to their arm yep. up in a ball and, and do a Turkish get up with them. What I like about that answer though, Molly, is it really, everything in that answer kind of highlights where I think you and I have gone in our fitness career. Meaning when we first got into, when we first started with exercise, 
what was what was your primary goal for exercise? And I'm going back. Let's rewind it back. I'm going to go back oh, yeah. in Iraq a little bit, back into probably our late teens or early 20s, whenever it was. Because where I want to go with that is like when you first saw an exercise like the Turkish get up, how much did that change? How much did that blow your mind? But let's go back, rewind first. What first got you interested in exercise and strength training? Yeah, I started strength training. Um, I think my junior year of college, I was 19 and I wanted to change the way my body looked. And I think that's the motivation for why so many people get into fitness, you know, unless I um, was a competitive gymnast for five years, which is hilarious because I'm almost six feet tall. So people definitely, they look at me and they're like outside hitter in volleyball and I'm like gymnastics, you know? Um, so, but you know, that's the, it was the sport that I loved. And, um, what I got into at a young age and I was a cheerleader for a couple of years, but I would not consider myself like a lifelong athlete. You know, some kids start playing soccer or basketball or whatever at five years old and, you know, play it all the way through high school or even into college. And that's what gets them in the weight room and lifting. For me, it was, I was actually pretty sedentary end of high school, beginning of college. Um, I was 19 years old. I looked in the mirror. I didn't like the way my body looked. I didn't like the way my body felt. Um, and so I decided I was like, all right, well, I'm going to start working out. And I absolutely fell in love with strength training immediately. And where'd you first learn about strength training? So you're, you're, you're relatively young woman coming into your body, learning your body. And I mean that because we all go through that growing phase and I think women, well, I don't think, but pretty conclusive evidence that women's bodies develop a little bit differently than, than boys' bodies at that certain age. But where did you go to for information? Where did you start looking for information when you wanted to start working out on your own? Yeah, so I I was one of those women, Pete. I was one of those women who said, I don't want to lift heavy because I don't want to get too bulky. That was what was in the Shape magazine and the Cosmopolitan and the main, you know the mainstream um, magazines that I was reading were all about you know, lifting and toning and two to three pound dumbbells. So I, there was a time I was going to the YMCA on my own and I would do, you know, whatever, 30, 45 minutes of, of cardio on the elliptical or the bike or whatever. And then I would go over and do machines. And I remember one of my high school teachers, it was over the summer, he was in there and he's like, Hey, and he's like, I think, you know, you're a strong girl. I think you could do more than that or said something about that, about the leg press. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to gain muscle. I want to tone the muscle I already have. And uh, I mean, just the most classic lines, right, that that make most trainers absolutely want to pull their hair out. But it gives me a lot of empathy and perspective about why women and girls often have this perception of strength training. So anyway, I would kind of go off and on to the gym a little bit on my own, just because my parents had a had a Y membership. And my dad had actually many years ago gotten me a membership at um, a really nice athletic club in town because it had a kids play center next door. So I would always I would use my membership to go do that. But long story short, um, when I decided, I was like, all right, this is it. I'm going to make this change. I've tried to make this change in my life before and it's never stuck. So I'm going to hire a trainer. And so I actually hired a personal trainer at the gym. Um, I was a poor college student, so I could only afford to hire him for like two 30 minute sessions a week for six weeks or something. But that was a lot of money to me at the time. And, um, he got me involved in strength training and I fell in love with it. And about eight months later, I started dating a guy at the gym, a trainer who was a competitive powerlifter and bodybuilder, which is much more economical. Those training <laughs> programs that, that worked out way better for me, but I was, but he was so into it and had been doing it for so long that I was then thrust into the world of, you know, intense strength training. I mean, I competed in my first powerlifting meet the following year. So I kind of dipped my toe, dabbled in it a little bit um, previously, 
hired a trainer, you know, started strength training more often, fell in love with the confidence and empowerment that came along with it. Also, to be honest, fell in love with the changes that I was seeing in my body and then just kind of kept going on my own. And then um, again, starting to, you know, date someone for two years who's involved in very, uh, the even more extreme or intense side of fitness. I, you know, discovered that and fell in love with that as well. Well, and what were those misconceptions that you had? And where do you think we get that? Because I think it's changed. And in all seriousness, you're one of those people responsible for for kind of creating that change or, or not forcing that change, but adjusting that change or guiding that change in, in modern culture. But where do you think where do you think women get this message about you don't need to lift weights? Or where do you think they were getting that message? Yeah, totally. I mean, again, this was like early to mid 2000s. Um, and maybe even late 90s when I was doing when I was, um, you know, kind of dipping my toe into fitness, I went full out in 2004. So I was kind of dabbling in it a little bit late 90s, early 2000s. And for me, at that time, I was wrapped up in gossip culture, celebrity magazines, you know, the fashion, whatever the shape, the um, uh, the cosmopolitan, the, you know, pre before that I'd been reading 17 and all that other kind of stuff. And that's what was being pushed during that era, right. Was doing significant amounts of cardio, lifting light weights to quote, quote unquote, tighten and tone. So I think it had, and there wasn't really social media at the time, right? So this was the only place that we could really go for information. Um, when I got into the more intense, uh, exercise. I started reading everything I could get my hands on, on like Teenation and Elite FTS and Stumptuous, which was run by Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Scott Dixon at the time, who's now a close friend and curriculum contributor to our certifications, which is very exciting. Um, but there were very few places that you could go on the internet to get this high quality information. I mean, I really got my start on message boards and forums back in the 2000s. So I was getting all of my information from mainstream media and celebrity and diet, you know, diet culture and gossip magazines. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of other women were getting theirs as well. And I would agree because it's funny years, not last year, I interviewed Kathy Smith and Kathy Smith was one of the original fitness influencers from back in the seventies and early eighties. She had TV, she did videos and she was saying, Molly, she, she said that in the seventies, Doctors told women not to strength train or not to run marathons. I mean, if you remember, there's that woman in the early 70s who crashed the Boston Marathon. Catherine Switzer, I think, or Switzer, yeah. Who crashed it, showed that, that it can run. And and so you have this huge evolution. And I really do think you touched upon social media because I, a couple of different things happened in the mid-2000s. One, you had the emergence of CrossFit. And now you had people doing competitive barbell lifts that had never heard of a snatch before outside of certain off-color jokes or off-color references. They had never heard of a barbell snatch before. Um, and now you have people competing in barbell snatches and, and mass things. At the same time that CrossFit was becoming popular, you had YouTube. And then a couple of years later, you had Instagram. So what about all those? I mean, where as that was changing, what started happening? What did we start seeing kind of happening in this whole information space? Yeah. So, you know, when I think back to Girls Gone Strong starting, so I got into fitness in 2004, um, was on, you know, on the forums and message boards. I mean, that's where I spent a lot of my early time. You think Facebook started around 2004 as well. You think about Facebook, like uh, business pages that we have now, well, those started as like fan pages, right? And like the um, early 2010s or whatever. So even between that, like 2004 to 2010 or 11 space, there wasn't a lot of 
quality information about strength and conditioning and nutrition and stuff happening online. I remember I would post things like, here's what I'm eating today, or like, here's a picture of my fridge, or this is what I did with my client, or here's what I did for my workout. And people were literally like, who is this weird girl that keeps telling us about what she's doing with her, you know, with her exercise and her nutrition, who cares? And I had started, um, you know, a quote, I hate the word fan page, but I started a quote, you know, fan page for myself or whatever. And, um, and, but in 2011, the kind of impetus for Girls Gone Strong starting was um, there were several women in the health and fitness space who had YouTube channels, who were blogging, who were, you know, competing in powerlifting or figure competitions. And we were kind of scattered all over the country and some, some of us all over the world. And a well-known strength and conditioning coach reached out to a group of about probably 10 or 15 of us and said, hey, I think it's time that more women do something in the field of strength and conditioning, more women, you know, kind of rise up and have success. I'm connecting you all. I hope you do something awesome with it. And um, so that was, I think, probably spring 2011. And shortly after that, myself and another woman named Jen Comas, who is a GGS co-founder, uh, we decided to go to Cincinnati to support a woman named Julia. Um, at the time, she was Leduski. Now she's Julia Anto in her powerlifting meet. And I sent an email to all the women on that list and said, hey, we're going to be in Cincinnati. It'd be so cool if everybody wants to get together and get in a training session and hang out. Because at that time, right, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's easy to forget that in 2011, women lifting heavy in uh, in the weight room was so rare that we didn't even have other women in our cities that we could work out with. So we were so hungry for that community that we were willing to travel from all over the country to come together to get in a training session. And so at that weekend, seven women came together from all over the US. We were like Las Vegas, Chicago, Baltimore, Belfast, Northern Ireland, and everybody flew in to get in a training session. And that ended up being the beginning of Girls Guns. And when we started, so to circle back to your question about social media, when we started our Girls Gun Strong Facebook fan page in 2011, we were essentially the first um, page, first Facebook page that any of us know of that was providing high quality strength training information for women. And all the guys in the industry were so excited. They were going bananas. They were sending everybody to our page. I remember um, the first blog post we had, the first blog post we ever published got like, you know, 20,000 views in one day and like 50,000 views in three days, which was a lot at that time. Um, because all the guys were sending people, they were saying, Hey, listen, they're saying what I've been telling you this whole time. So if you need to hear it from, you know, from another woman or whatever, like, like, listen to them, follow them. They're awesome. And so all that to say, it's easy to feel like there's so much of this information online today. But this has really been a relatively recent um, kind of evolution in the last 10 or 11 years that, that quality strength and conditioning and nutrition and behavior change information and, you know, um, injury prevention and rehab and all that is being provided on the internet. And so I, I think there's, um, there's a lot more really good information. And then there's also a lot of really, you know, bogus crappy information as well. But um, it, there's a lot of opportunity to learn from social media in a way that there really hadn't been in the, you know, 10 years before.
And, and I'm going to share something with you in a minute. But what, I, what I've seen, Molly, what, what I love about that, because you gave that's, – that's exactly how I remember it, right? And, and I'm a student of history. My, my original undergrad degree was going to be history, economics, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, and I finished with economics and government. So I'm always a fan of history and I'm a fan well, – I, I pay attention to history and I pay attention to our industry. And I was working at the American Council on Exercise at about that time. And that's when CrossFit was becoming more popular, the high intensity. That's when personally I started speaking and writing a lot more about recovery. But right about that same time, 2011, 2012, that you guys were getting the fan page started, that's when I became a girl dad. So that's when I found out that obviously I was going to, we had our first daughter in 2012. I ended up having a second daughter in 2014. But I knew intuitively, I knew that what I didn't like being a, a male ed personal trainer and a male fitness educator was I could talk about the science of exercise, but applying it, I always felt awkward. And this was, you know, that was 10, 12 years ago before we had the concept of mansplaining. So when, <laughs> as Girls Gone Strong was getting evolved, I was one of those coaches. What, what people couldn't see earlier was me nodding my head so hard it almost snapped off my neck because I was one of those coaches and trainers who loved the fact that now we have a group of women saying, here's how we as women strength train and here's the way we should be strength training because it takes pressure off of me because I don't want to tell a woman how she should be training. I mean, theoretically, I can study and go, yeah, well, whatever. But I don't have the same experience. Just like a 24-year-old dude shouldn't be telling me how I should be training at the age of 50 because I'm sorry, you're 24. You don't understand a 50-year-old body. It's slightly different. So let me ask where I'm going with that. And that's why I've become such a fan of what you are doing, Molly, and what you've done with GGS is because you really – you really addressed a need that was not there, that was not being met. And I cannot em emphasize how important that is. So the question, that one of the first questions I want to ask is, did you ever, when you started on this journey a number of years ago, did you ever have any idea that you'd be creating a certification and education course about this type of information? Yeah, that's a great question. I did not. You know, I think um, with kind of journeys that we go on like this, whether they're, they're, you know, personal kind of evolutions, or it's the evolution of a business. It's you can really oftentimes only see like the next 20, 30 feet in front of you, right? So you're just kind of taking those steps. So um, I don't think I ever would have imagined that we would have written two uh, textbooks on coaching women, one 600 pages that covers coaching adult women across their lifespan, one 500 pages that that's specific to pre and postnatal. But one thing that I do think that um, I've always done pretty well is identified a gap um, in, in what I'm seeing in health and fitness. So back in 2011, it was a gap in, um, you know, women understanding the importance of moderate to heavy strength training for um, health, for longevity, for strength, for muscle mass, for confidence, for empowerment. Shortly after that, um, it was the importance of understanding mental health and well-being. It was the under uh, importance of um, uh, helping women, you know, identify their body image struggles and feel more comfortable in their body. A few years after that, it was the importance of understanding that um, there's limited representation in the fitness industry and that it's really important to make sure that when we create our education, that we're bringing together a diverse group, not just um, from diverse disciplines, right? Our certifications are interdisciplinary. So we actually have, you know, psychologists, 
um, PhDs in exercise science, uh, registered dietitians, OBGYNs, pelvic health physical therapists, strength and conditioning coaches, midwives and doulas, all working on the content together. I saw that there was a big gap in, in, in an interdisciplinary approach. I saw that there was a lack of diversity. So I wanted to bring together women of different um, ages, races, body shapes and sizes, countries, right? Our certifications are written by women in from five different countries. So we can bring all of those perspectives together. So the information is, um, is, is globally relevant. And so I think while I couldn't have foreseen that we would be creating these certifications, one thing that I do think that has maybe been a little bit of a superpower of mine is being able to see like, hey, no one's talking about this thing. And it's really incredibly important. And so that's what we've tried to do with our certifications. Um, you know, you take a, you get a bachelor's degree in kinesiology, or you take um, kind of a general personal training certification, you're lucky if you get like two paragraphs about a woman's menstrual cycle or pregnancy. They're like, oh, she shouldn't lay on her back. Don't let her overheat, keep her hydrated and heart rate shouldn't go over 140. And it's like, those aren't even actually, I mean, yes, don't let her overheat and keep her hydrated, but the other ones uh, are way more nuanced and um, th than that. So that, you know, that information is not even really accurate. And so we saw that there was, you know, the health and fitness industry was treating women like a niche or special population, which is just bananas. Because if you walk into a gym, if you um, coach clients online, if you, uh, you know, run a personal training Kind of program, you know that 67 to 75% of the people who are coming in the door to hire a coach or trainer are women. And 85% of women in the US will have a baby at some point in their life. Um, I'm doing, we're doing a lot of work on uh, menopause education right now. Perimenopausal symptoms can start as early as 39 and impact women for up to 20 years of their life. And 73% of them never seek treatment for their symptoms. And it can literally rock their world, everything from hot flushes to poor sleep, to weight gain, to brain fog, to anxiety, to depression. And so I, I like to get across the point, women are not fragile, right? We don't need to be treated with kid gloves. We can strength train really heavy and we're powerful and we're resilient and we're badass. And there's a lot about training women that is that a lot of principles that are the same, right? We're using progressive overload with women. We're you know what I mean? Uh, periodizing their training, they're, you know, doing all the big movement patterns, all a lot of that stuff is very similar. And there are an enormous amount of both physiological, anatomical, psychological differences between coaching women and coaching men, that if you are going to be a remarkable personal trainer who actually builds a lasting career in this industry, like you have to be really, really good at training women. And that's something that we're trying to get across. You know, there's so many um, uh, like online business coaches and everyone's like, oh, I can teach you how to. And it's like, hold on, the foundation of, of all of this, of having a successful career in the industry, and you know this because you've been in our industry a long time, is being remarkable at your craft. And if 67 to 75% of your coaches are women, you have to be remarkable at coaching women. You have to have a deep understanding of what's unique about coaching them. You have to understand what you don't know, which I love that you said that earlier, right? I think I want to be really clear. I think men can be fantastic coaches and trainers of women. And so they have to deeply understand women. And then they also have to understand there's some things that they're never going to know about firsthand. And that's okay, right? As long as they know and acknowledge that and don't do the, you know, like you said, the 24 year old personal trainer trying to tell the 
you know, 38 year old mother of three that she should just be more disciplined and work harder. And, you know, he lives in his mom's basement and she cooks all of his meals for him or whatever. And he's like, Oh, you should just, this is exactly what you should be eating six times a day. Right. Um, but so I think knowing what you don't know and, um, knowing what you, uh, yeah, just how your experiences are different, I think is critical, but that that's the thing we were really sick of seeing women being treated like a niche or special population in the industry when they're the ones who make up the majority of the health and fitness clientele. We're not being even considered, Molly. Not, I mean, one of the funniest, you know, and this is a relatively repeated post. I know there's been a famous one lately that I've seen, and it's, it's a young woman lifting in a gym, and she has maybe three or four plates on, so she's pulling maybe 315 or 405. I forget what, it was, it was, it was a good weight. It was, it was a good weight. I can't do that weight anymore, so I'm always impressed. I'm impressed with if somebody can do that, but it was kind of interesting because she was doing it for reps, and she had her video set up, and you can see as she's doing like four or five reps, the dudes are looking at her in the background going, oh my God, this little girl's lifting, or this little woman's lifting that weight. And it's, it's so interesting because to me, I think we've always discounted women. It, it, women have always been an afterthought, and we've discounted them, and we haven't really programmed for them the way they should be programmed for. You know what I mean? And that's always bothered me. Now, a quick question that I want to ask you is why should women train differently than men? Yeah. So again, I think so many of the, I want to be clear that a lot of the principles are the same. Like I said, you know, we want women squatting and hinging and, you know, pulling and pushing and lunging and rotating and stepping and, um, you know, doing power training and, uh, you know, doing a dynamic warm up and breathing and whatnot. There are that said, there are a lot of unique anatomical and, and physiological considerations. One of the most prominent that is so under uh, attended to in the health and fitness industry is pelvic health. So when we talk about 67 to 75% of people who hire a coach or trainer are women, 85% of those women will have a baby at some point in their life. That means if you're working with women, there's a good chance that you're going to work with women who are pregnant or postpartum. I was recently talking with a guy who's a very um, well-known kind of prestigious trainer. He works with a lot of golf athletes and he was telling me that his wife just had their second baby. And I said, oh, so your wife's postpartum? And he goes, well, not anymore. She had the baby a year ago. And I was like, ah, well, she's actually postpartum forever. Um, the same way that you're never pre-ACL surgery, just because you had ACL surgery a year ago, you never go back to being pre-ACL surgery. Now, people can't see me. I'm using air quotes here, right? Well, if I can cut and, in on that real quick, Molly, I, I'm going to just, because when my ex-wife would, uh, maybe a year or two after, it'd be a, a year, is the year, maybe two years after our second daughter was born in 2014, every now and then she'd sneeze and you'd hear, oh shit, or she'd start laughing and she'd hear, oh shit. And she would dribble a little bit of urine because she yep. had some, and I'm just saying that to reinforce your point that, so go ahead. So my ex had experienced that she would sneeze and all of a sudden would dribble some urine being postpartum. So I'm just reinforcing what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And so he was, and so I want to be clear when we say, um, once a woman has a baby, she's postpartum forever. That doesn't mean she's fragile. It doesn't mean that she can't, um, get back to, uh, to intense exercise or be as strong or even stronger as she was before. Same thing as an athlete who's maybe torn an ACL, right? Doesn't mean they're doomed forever. It does mean that their body has been through unique anatomical and physiological considerations that have to be taken into account. So 48 to 67% of women um, leak urine by week 30 of their pregnancy. And around 50% of women are still experiencing some sort of postpartum incontinence about a year 
postpartum. And here's the, here's the wild thing. There was a study of, I think, nearly 400 women done in Perth, Western Australia in 2016. They were female gym goers. They were attending a group fitness class, age 18 to 83. And almost 50% of them reported leaking some sort of urine during exercise, regardless of whether or not they've had children. We also know that 50% of postmenopausal women have some form of incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse or both after age, I think 50 or 51. And so, and I actually experienced urinary incontinence as a female gymnast at the age of like seven and eight. Right. And so it's it this pelvic health issue does not discriminate right there are certain inciting factors that we have throughout our lifetime like pregnancy like a vaginal birth like going through menopause and having a decline in estrogen and having changes to the tissue um however up to 19% of women will have surgery for pelvic organ prolapse or incontinence in their lifetime almost 1 in 5 wow. like it, that's completely unheard of. And then same thing when we circle back to um, thinking about pregnancy and postpartum, until we published our pre and postnatal coaching certification, there were no standardized guidelines for return to exercise after pregnancy for women. Hmm. There's a return to exercise protocol after ACL surgery. There's a return to exercise protocol after somebody tears their labrum, right? There's a very specific, slow, progressive um, program that someone engages in if they go through a certain injury or surgery or whatever the thing is, and they want to return back to this particular activity. Not that has never been written for women until we published those guidelines. Why do you think that is? I mean, and and I hear that Molly and that to me on one hand, and I'm interested in your, your thought on why that is. I can kind of see a group of male scientists or a group of male doctors and go, Oh, you know, it's only women. They'll get back to it when, when it's all right. I mean, it's funny, over the last two or three years, obviously with so many other things going on in in our greater society, I'm one of those people who is really, I guess I've kind of always known it's there, but I haven't realized how much it's there. But I didn't realize until the last few few years, the layers and the depth of the misogyny and the racism and just the years of just cultural just shit that we've been layering on each other as a society and that's where, you know, that's going a little bit off the rails of what we're talking about with exercise. But I think the fact that there were no existing guidelines for, for what to do after you exercise is a perfect example of that. And what's yeah. been the result been? As you've been introducing, I know when I first saw these programs, I was blown away by what you, what you did and how you put it together. But as you've been introducing this, how have people been responding to that in the market? Yeah. So a couple things. One, it, it actually is a hundred percent completely related to exercise in 1994, the national Institute of health actually had to mandate that women and what they called minorities at the time, but what we would now likely refer to as people of color be included in research studies because we were so underrepresented. So 1994, they realized that there was a significant gap in, in, you know, medical and health and fitness research, such that pretty much all of the um, studies were being done on young white men. And they were realizing, oh, wow, we're treating heart disease in women the same as we're treating it in, you know, I mean, in, in white males or whatever. And there are differences in the protocols and the medications and the reactions to the type of medication, like, we really need to, um, we really need to change this and ensure that that if we're going to be treating a 
a diverse and varied population for these particular ailments, we need to study a diverse and varied population. And so that was just 28, what, 28 years ago that they actually had to mandate that women and people of color be included in research studies. So I do, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of exclusion, a lot of misogyny, but also just, um, simply representation, right? So if the majority of people doing the research are white men, they are going to be considering and thinking about issues that impact them. And so I think that I want to be careful to finger point, not to finger point, right? Because like, for example, I have particular topics that I'm super interested in, right? There's a lot that I don't know, for example, about certain physical disabilities or accessibility, because that hasn't been, been a big part of my life. If I had a family member or friend who is maybe hard of hearing, or deaf, I would probably be a lot more well-versed in that particular, um, you know, difference in ability than I am now because it would be a bigger part of my life. And so I think um, I want to be careful to be too, you know, finger pointy, right? But when you're dominating, uh, you know, when a particular group of people who haven't had these experiences are dominating where the money's going, what research is being done, what um, interest they have in finding out certain things, right? Then that's, that's the research um, that's going to be done. And those are the conclusions that they're going to come to. I heard a really interesting stat that over a, I think a three or four year period, the department of defense spent like $300 million on erectile dysfunction medication alone. And 73% of women go through, sorry, and, and menopausal women can go through uh, intense symptoms for 20 years and 73% of them never get treatment, right? If that doesn't tell you something about whose needs are, needs are being prioritized in the marketplace, it's, it's just bananas. So um, I actually recently had a, had a uh, follow-up or had an appointment with a cardiologist here in Scottsdale Um because my, I think we talked about this a little bit before we hopped on. My sister recently passed away of a sudden, um, of an aortic dissection. And they said there could be a genetic component to it. And so I went in and I, I had had a screening echocardiogram and I had brought him my labs and I have high LDL cholesterol. And as he's like putting my information into the system, he's like, listen, he's like, your risk factor at this point for cardiac disease is 0.4%. And he's like, however, He's like, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with the history of sexism in the field of cardiology. And he's like, but historically, most cardiologists are men. And there's been this long history of women um, not getting the care that they need, not having their symptoms identified, not having, um, you know, when they're presenting with the exact same symptoms as a man, not having the same test run because there's this uh, misconception that, you know, heart disease doesn't impact women the same way. He's like, so I want to be really careful here. I want to get a, you know, cardiac CT for you, et cetera. But anyway, the point was, was he was saying, Hey, I've been a cardiologist for 30 years. Historically, cardiologists are men. There's a lot of sexism in this particular field because of certain misconceptions about how heart disease affects women. And so I want to go the extra step and do these tests on you that I would do if you were a male presenting with these same symptoms, because I want to be super sure that anything that might be going on that we catch it early and we can figure out the right intervention for you. And so it's it's happening in every this is this is why representation is so important, right? Because Anywhere that important decisions are being made, whether it's in, you know, the research lab or in government or in schools or in places of worship, having diverse representation ensures that more perspectives consider are considered. And research actually shows that diverse teams make better decisions, faster decisions and more profitable decisions. 
Well, I was going to say, coming into it, I mean, and I would agree, and I want to touch on something before we wrap up here, because I would agree with your, and I, and I 100%, I don't think there's an overt misogyny, or I don't think there's a purposeful racism. I just think that as a white guy, I'm more inclined, to your point, I'm more inclined to be interested, study stuff that's more interested to middle-aged white guys. So I think when it's been pointed out to me, it's like, oh, shoot, I didn't, didn't even occur to me. You know what I mean? It's like, it didn't occur to me that we should be thinking, and I think that's where we are. It's like, oh, you know what? We didn't think about that. We should be thinking of, about this. Now, you, you you mentioned the loss of your sister. And and before we wrap up, because the one thing, Molly, that 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 I've really – that the last two or three years and, – and I'm trying not to refer, refer, reference to what happened in 2020, even though that's the underlying whatever, the bull, in the, the, the bull in the room. But I think one of the things that we've learned over the last few years is that we've had to be resilient. We've had to have mental toughness. We've had to learn how to work through things, through obstacles and challenges that we might not have seen coming. So one of the benefits, biggest benefits, I think personally, I feel about strength training, and it's hard to quantify. One of the things I think about consistent strength training is it gives you the mental fortitude and the mindset to be goal-focused and oriented. And you're very much, and we don't know each other that well, but from the little interaction we've had over the years, I definitely see you as somebody who's very goal-oriented, very focused. When you dealt with something like the unexpected loss of your sister, how much did your strength training, How do you tie like your ability to work through the emotions in there? How do you connect that back with, with, the, with the strength? And I'm not talking physical strength, but I'm talking mental strength and, and the confidence that you developed in the gym. How does that apply to this area of life where you were just dealt with a totally unexpected bump in the road? Yeah. Yeah. So as you mentioned, lost my sister very unexpectedly. We had, it was completely shocking. No signs or symptoms of anything. She had an aortic aneurysm that led to an aortic dissection um, about two and a half months ago. And, you know, I also lost my dad really suddenly in 2012 when I was in the kind of the middle of my health and fitness journey. And, um, and that absolutely, you know, rocked my world and shattered my world in a similar way. And, so I would say in, in, in 2008 is when I started going to therapy. So for me, being physically active and specifically strength training combined with the mental health therapy that I've done working with a licensed mental health professional have been the two biggest things that have changed the trajectory of my life forever. And so the mental health stuff that I've done, I think has built a lot of, it's allowed me to be vulnerable. It's allowed me to understand how to um, actually feel my feelings. I mean, that's been a really huge part of this process. Like grief is not something that you power through. Grief is something that you have to really submit to. And um, that you can't go around it. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. Like you have to go through it. And so for me, I would say the skills that I learned um, in therapy combined with my kind of self-care practices through, you know, strength training, being physically active, um, watching my nutrition that helped me care for my physical body and my, um, therapy that I've done over the years really helped me care for, uh, my mental and emotional body. But it's really hard to kind of separate because I've been strength training for almost 20 years and I've been doing therapy for almost 14 years. Really, they feed into each other so much because through strength training, I've developed confidence. I've developed self-efficacy. I feel really capable. I feel like I'm with, I, I, I'm able to prove to myself over and over again that with um, practice, 
and commitment and showing up that anything is possible, right? That I, that I can set a goal for myself and I can um, engage in the daily habits and practices that it takes to make it more likely that I'm going to achieve that goal. And so for me, those two things have really kind of gone hand in hand in my ability to be able to deal with something like this, handle this sort of blow um, and come out the other side. Okay. Right. I still have incredibly hard days. I still um, grieve a lot. I started crying last night. I found my sister worked for us at uh, girls gone strong and I found a project that she was working on that um, kind of fell through the cracks that hasn't been carried on since, since she passed. And I had to film a video for our team about, Hey, we need to get someone to help with this. And I just couldn't stop crying, but I, I let myself, you know, like, I um I let myself feel my feelings. I don't shy away from them. I understand that vulnerability is a strength. And through the consistency um, and the physical strength that I've built in the gym, it's also built um, a lot of mental, mental and emotional fortitude as well. And like you said, resilience. So I'm able to see like I can get knocked down and get back up over again. I can attempt to do something in the gym. And if I don't get it that time, then I go back and practice more and can get it the next time. So for me, it's really been a marriage of the two of the, of the physical strength that I've built. And then the emotional and mental strength that I've built through therapy. I love that. I'm just thinking about, because I I think one of the other things besides talking about diversity, besides inclusion and everything, I mean, one of the things about the last few years is really having a much more open discussion about mental health and how we affect. And, and that's one of the reasons why, I mean, this, I, I deal with depression and one of the reasons why I put my podcast on pause for a little while was just, you know, I had too many things building up and I wasn't doing a good mm-hmm. job of managing it all. And, you know, and again, I speak with a therapist, you know, and I, we see each other about once a month and, and for listeners, I can't tell you how much I appreciate therapy um, at the very least to kind of identify when things are getting a little bit out of sorts and you can identify, hey, I need to put myself first here sometimes. I think I, you know, we all have a hard a hard time doing that. And I really appreciate you're talking about that and you're being vulnerable. And my, this conversation blew by. I'm looking at the time here. I know we got a schedule. And, and you, it, it's, so, it's so much fun to have this conversation because, again, we don't know each other that well. But just seeing what you've done, seeing how you... I love, I absolutely love how you have disrupted the fitness industry and how you're kind of, you know, causing a few waves. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, professionally you know, in my role at EOS, I'm really looking forward to collaborating with you and, and, and enhancing that. But I just, I love what you're doing. I want to try to, ele- I want to try to elevate your message as much as I can help you with that. So give everybody, how can people track you down? Obviously you're well known, but how can people get more information about what you're doing and about more importantly, what you're doing through Girls Gone Strong? Yeah, so girlsgunstrong.com is the best place you can find um, links to our different certifications there. So we have two certifications, one that covers coaching adult women across their lifespan. That's our women's coach, GGS1 Women's Coaching Specialist Certification. We have one that's specific to the pre and postnatal period. That's our pre and postnatal coaching certification. We also have dozens of free five-day courses and articles and other resources on the website. If you want to connect with me directly, the best place to um, where I'm most active is Instagram. So I'm at the Molly Galbraith. And you can also follow at the Girls Gone Strong as well. Pete, I really appreciate your kind words. I have your support. Like you have championed me and Girls Gone Strong for so many years now. And I just really appreciate um, your wisdom your time in the industry. It is super rare to have been in the industry for the amount of time that you have. So clearly you have done a great job in all of your different roles. And I really appreciate um, 
you know, that you're confident in what you know, and you're also a lifelong learner and constantly open to, um, to, you know, learning new things and seeing things from a different perspective. And I think that's probably why you have been in the industry so long and been so successful. So I really appreciate you as a friend and a colleague and, um, yeah, thanks so much for, for chatting with me today. Absolutely fascinating conversation. You heard me talk about that. I mean, I I started following Molly right about the time that I found out I was going to be a girl dad. Maybe there's a little overlap, but I've just been, number one, as an educator who works in fitness, if you listen all about fitness, you know I'm always cautious. I don't want to mansplain. I don't want to be the one saying, this is the way to do it. I, I just get nervous about that because I think that's too common in fitness is men kind of... We don't give women credit for what they're capable of, and we kind of tend to look down on that. And that's really, as, as a girl dad and as somebody who, who recognizes that, that's why I wanted to have Molly on because Molly is really changing how we do fitness and the way that fitness is delivered to a large percentage of the population. And she's 100% right. I mean, she she had a statement in there where she was talking about um, the number of, I mean, a majority of health club members, I think, I've seen different numbers, around 60%, give or take, 55 65%. Of health club winner of health club members are women, yet most health club companies are male dominated. Most equipment companies are male dominated. So there's a huge dichotomy and a huge difference in, in our industry. And if you've listened to all about fitness over a period of time, you've heard me talk and you've heard me feature a number of the female leaders in our industry for that reason because I think they should get more recognition. The work that Molly's doing is phenomenal. We need more of that to move us in the direction that we should be. We should be having education for all people who like to exercise. We should be very inclusive for everyone. That's what fitness is. I mean, we all have the same basic body and we should all learn how to use it the right way. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to feature Molly and what she's doing is she really is a phenomenal job of just really moving moving us forward in a direction that we need to go. If you're looking for education on women in strength training, I cannot recommend her enough. That's Molly Galbraith with Girls Gone Strong. And hey, as always, thanks for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.